Well, we are starting a new series this morning, and if we, we think about uh, our, our walk with Jesus, last week I, I used the phrase our apprenticeship to Jesus. If we think about uh, being a disciple or a, our apprenticeship to Jesus, is there anything more important than prayer? And yet, I wonder if there's anything that can be more discouraging in our apprenticeship than prayer. See, I, again, so much of this, I speak for myself, I suspect I'm not alone, but I don't want to assume. The thing is, we, we know that we should pray, and, and we want to pray, or at least we want to want to pray. Uh, we admire those who pray, we, we admire those who are great prayers, and yet when it comes to looking at our own prayer lives, many of us, I think, feel like failures, like we're not doing it right, or we're not doing it enough, or we're not doing it properly, or, or whatever that might look like. Uh, more than once, uh, I've been sitting with a mentor and, and talking through some things, and they've said, so, okay, I hear that. How's your prayer life? And that's a question that I wasn't always excited to answer. Again, many of us feel like we, we should be able to pray. It doesn't, I'm not sure it matters where we are in our prayer life, but we feel like we should be able to pray better, longer, deeper, whatever it might be. I, I've read more than a few books that talk about prayer or great prayers, and at the same time felt inspired to, to grow in my prayer life and saddened that I wasn't as good a prayer as I feel like I should be. Now, all that said, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that if we look at all four Gospels that we have in our New Testament, the four biographies of Jesus that we have in our Bibles, there's only one recorded instance where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something. Can you guess what it was? It's recorded for us in Luke 11, right at the beginning. Luke writes this. He says, he was praying, Jesus was praying in a certain pray, place. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something about how they saw Jesus interacting with the Father, something with, with, with how they saw his prayer life. I'm squeaking, hey? Let's try that. Something they saw in his prayer life that, that they just wanted. They, 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 they no doubt grew up praying in the synagogue, no doubt they knew how to pray. They'd been taught how to pray, but they saw something different in Jesus. And what follows in, in Luke chapter 11, in the next couple of verses, is the shorter version of what's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer, which uh, I might suggest this prayer would be better known as the model prayer because Jesus didn't have to pray it for himself, right? Jesus never had to pray for forgiveness. So it might be, uh, this might just be semantics, but it might be better to remember uh, the high priestly prayer in John 17 as the Lord's Prayer and call this one uh, the model prayer for us. Now, all, all that said, it seems uh, perhaps obvious to me that, that if I or if we are struggling with prayer and the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them and he obliged was how to pray, and there's two places in our four Gospels where Jesus answers the question, well, we should be able to pray, right? But honestly, I, I don't think this struggle should surprise us. Think about what we're doing, think about what we're doing when we pray. 
even when we pray this, this model prayer, and there's maybe a couple spoiler alerts coming for the series in front of us. But when we pray this model prayer, we're, we're doing a, a number of things. First, we're acknowledging that there is a supernatural being, God, who's in heaven, who's, who, who's elsewhere understood to be the creator of all things that we have access to. More than that, it's, it's not just that there's this supernatural being who is, who is God, who has created all things that we have access to, but we can actually address this supernatural being as Father. And we're, we're saying that, that this Father, this, this God, this supernatural being that we have access to is so other than us that we rightly call him holy. And then as we pray, we, we, we focus on his character. We focus on his kingdom. We focus on his will. All these other things that we want to be true of us and true of this world. And when we pray, we're, we're looking outside of ourselves for things like provision and forgiveness and protection and deliverance from the evil one. Now, if we have that kind of access to the creator, to a, a supernatural God, don't you think that the evil one that we're asking for protection and deliverance from would want to do everything he can to discourage us from taking advantage of accessing that God? Don't you think he would want to, to lie to us, to tell us we're doing it wrong? To whisper in our ears that, no, that's only super Christians can pray to God. You got you to sort yourself out first. Wouldn't he want to distract us again and again from, from taking advantage of our position as sons and daughters? It's no surprise that we struggle with prayer. We're, we're in the midst of a supernatural battle, and this is a big part of it. Now, there are two spots, as I mentioned, in the Gospels where we find this model prayer in Luke 11 and also in Matthew chapter 6 as part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so for the next few weeks, we're kind of going to hunker down in Matthew 6 and learn and then hopefully during the week leave here and practice how we pray. And so we're going to look at the model prayer as taught by the model teacher. So if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can open up with me to Matthew chapter 6. And I'm actually going to start back at verse 5. And this is one of the differences between uh, the Luke account of the model prayer and Matthew. In, in Luke, Jesus is asked the question, and he says, okay, pray like this, and goes right into it. But in Matthew, we, we find this teaching section on prayer in the midst of a larger teaching, as we know of the Sermon on the Mount, but also a larger teaching on prayer itself. So let me read Matthew 6, verse 5. Jesus says, whenever you pray, so again, it's, it's assumed that we're praying. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Now, I do want to define hypocrite for us really quickly, not to turn this into a language lesson, but because I think there's a way that Jesus is using this word and that this word would have been understood that, that maybe we might misunderstand in our day. Now, hypocrite uh, in those days was, uh, it was a word used for a play actor, somebody in the theater, in part of a production. This was someone who was wearing a mask or taking on a role. They were a completely different person on stage as they were in real life. 
some examples that might help us kind of picture what this definition of hypocrite is. Somebody loudly proclaiming publicly and on social media and everywhere they go that everyone should be a vegetarian, if not a vegan, that would be even better, but then going home, firing up the barbecue and cooking themselves a delicious, medium-rare, triple-A Alberta beefsteak. <laughs> Somebody campaigning uh, again, loudly against the tobacco industry and in every public setting they can find, and yet heading home and smoking a pack a day. Okay? Hypocrite. One writer says, too often Christians think of hypocrites as someone who do one thing but feel another. That's not hypocrisy. Uh, hypocrites publicize one set of beliefs but live by another. A few examples. Uh, if you come to church but don't really feel like coming to church, one of those mornings that never happens to anyone here, but <laughs> where you know I should go, but it's like it's minus 30 out and I just want to stay in bed and all the things. That's not hypocrisy. That's more like faithfulness, knowing that you should do something and do it. When you, when you do the right thing in your marriage, even if you don't feel loving towards your spouse that day, that's not hypocrisy, that's fidelity. <laughs> when you're praying, even though you're not sure you believe at that moment, even, even if you, you feel distant from God, but yet you, you pray, that can simply be honesty, not hypocrisy. I think it's uh, Kevin DeYoung who wrote, uh, doing what's right when you don't feel like doing what's right is maturity. But professing one thing in public and living a different way in private is hypocrisy. See the difference there? As I was reflecting on this, I, I'm not sure that you can accidentally be a hypocrite when we're talking about it in this way. And so Jesus warns about this when we pray. Don't be religious in public, but not in private. And I would suggest that, that Jesus' warning is even starker when you start to serve in and around the church. It becomes more real when you start meeting with people, when you start to maybe lead a small group or lead a prayer meeting, or when you stand up to lead music or become an elder or a deacon or a pastor. It can be really easy to, to put forward this persona and, and pray in a certain way when you know you're not living up to those standards. So the question is, what, what are you doing when you pray? Are you looking to, to give people a good impression, to have people puff you up? Or, or is your public persona an overflow of your private relationship with the Lord? Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't make it a show. Then the second warning comes out in verse 7. Jesus says, when you pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Now, when Jesus says this, he's not picking on a certain ethnic group necessarily, but he's rather talking about all of those who don't yet know the one true God. And what he's getting at when he says this is, is that rote repetition and ritual isn't what God's looking for in prayer. Uh, when I was in, in college, I took a course on world religions, and as part of that course, we uh, were invited to and visited a number of different uh, worship sites of some different religions around the city. And one thing that was notable was the ritual. Say these words, face this direction, 
bow, stand, kneel, bow, stand, kneel. It, 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 was, it was ritual. There's an example of this also in the Old Testament. We, we talked about it actually a couple of weeks ago with Elijah, when, when Elijah was in the standoff with the prophets of Baal. Right? And we remember uh, on that day, 450 prophets of Baal called out all day. We read that they, they cut themselves. They said the right things, the right things. They performed all the rituals to try to get their God to respond. They babbled like the Gentiles, if you will. But when it was Elijah's turn, he basically stood up and said, God, you're the Lord of heaven and earth, and I ask you to show yourself. And fire from heaven came down. Somewhere this week I read, be like the one, not the 450. Simple to God. Now to be clear, Jesus does elsewhere teach about us keeping on asking as we pray, as we pray. But there's a difference between persistent prayer and babbling prayer. There's a difference there. Okay, so, so how we approach prayer matters. We don't want to approach prayer as a show. We don't want to approach prayer as a way to badger God as if we can wear him down to do what we want. Uh, John Piper helpfully writes this. He says, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. Love it. He goes on to say that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comfort in the den. Feeling a little guilty, convicted there from time to time. Hey God, uh, if 30 could come up to minus 5, that would be great. So, how do we pray? Matthew 6, verse 9. Therefore, Jesus says, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven. This, this opening line called the address sets the stage for the rest of the prayer. And it's actually as far as we're going to get today. Because there's a danger with this prayer. If I kept and continued on reading, you'd all know what I was going to say, probably. You've probably heard it once or twice. And maybe, since it's like, you know, five verses, and statistically our attention spans are only about six seconds, I wouldn't make it to the end before you've tuned out and thought, yeah, minus five would be really nice, actually. <laughs> right? Chances are we've all heard this prayer. Chances are we've lost count how many times we've heard it or even said it. There is a, a danger in the familiarity that the words just become another thing we say to get to the end. I've mentioned once or twice before how uh, Pastor Louis Giglio talks about a one-verse Bible study where he'll take a, a, a chunk of the, the Bible and rather than look at uh, a section or a paragraph or a sentence or even a verse or a phrase, he says, no, no, take one word and just dwell on that for the day. Well, I'm going to do four today, so sorry, Louis. But have you ever done that with just these opening words? Our Father in heaven. how we begin our prayers is really important. The fact that we have the privilege to come before the sovereign Lord of the universe is something that we can't take for granted. And it's really what's right at the heart of the Christian faith. Theologian J.I. Packer puts it this way, you could actually sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. You could sum the whole Testament, New Testament up in this. 
He says, in the same way you could sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this isn't the thought that prompts and controls our worship and prayers, our whole outlook on life, it means we don't understand Christianity very well at all. Our Father in heaven. I pray that we would grasp this and this privilege. When, when Jesus taught this, his original hearers would have been surprised, probably even shocked. Uh, see, the Old Testament, they, the, the Jews would have known their Old Testament. They would have been raised in synagogue. Many of them would have had much of it memorized by the time they sat in front of Jesus and heard this teaching. And the Old Testament is filled with, with name after name that we could uh, apply to God, that we could use to give God praise and glory. But, but nowhere in the Old Testament does it suggest that we should pray to God as our Father or that we should call him our Father. See, that's, that's something new. That's something new that, that Jesus is doing. Our Father in heaven. And I worry that this little address that starts the prayer has become, again, too familiar to me and maybe to us. And so we're going to keep keying in on these words so we don't rush, rush past them. Because think about what we're saying when we say our Father in heaven. We're speaking to the God of the universe, the God who made everything out of nothing, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the ten plagues, the God who who parted the Red Sea, the God whose glory came down and filled the tabernacle and the temple, the God of David, the God who we read shakes the cedars of Lebanon, the God who showed himself to Daniel as the Ancient of Days, the God whom no one can stand face to face with and live. And Jesus says, call him Father. This is a a, a term of, of intimacy and closeness. And to be able to use language like this, it's not a right that we have, but it's a spiritual privilege. And what I mean is that even though God is creator, and and as such, all of creation can say, well, God's our creator, so God is kind of the father of all creation. But to call him our father is a privilege that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus and are born again. At the beginning of John's gospel, John writes this, but to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in name, who were born uh, who believe in his name, excuse me, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Only disciples, apprentices of Jesus, get to call God Father. In his little book on the Lord's Prayer, uh, which so far I highly recommend by Kevin DeYoung, he notes that even in the Old Testament where the fatherhood of God is less clear than the New Testament, we see that this intimate relationship of a father and his children or his chosen people is a special privilege reserved for God's people. Fifteen times in the Old Testament, uh, it uses father in a religious sense, but in the New Testament, which is significantly shorter, mind you, it's 245 times. 
what was occasionally present in the Old Testament has become central in the New Testament, namely that by God's initiative, we can approach him as our father. John would later write in one of his letters to the church, see what great love the father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are our father in heaven. It's so important that this model prayer, and as we're trying to grow our prayer lives, we, if we use this at our, as our model, it's important that it starts off with a fact about God and, and about our relationship with him because it establishes our right to be heard. Why are we heard? Because God's our father. We have this relationship with him. Like that, that passage in First John says, we, uh, or in John 1, excuse me, says, not this one, the one from before, We don't come to God with our prayers because of our own personal goodness or righteousness. It's not that we've done so many good deeds that we've we've earned the right to have an audience with God. Not at all. It's all because of Jesus and his righteousness. It's actually when we recognize that we're not good enough, that we're not righteous or blameless or sinless, that we're headed in the right direction to be able to call God Father. See, it's when we come to the end of ourselves and when we, when we turn to Jesus and believe that he is who he said he was, that he is the second person of the Trinity, the only one with the right to call God Father. Uh, when we believe that he came and he walked this earth to show us how to rightly relate to God as Father and that he was completely obedient to God as Father and then he went to the cross and died for the sin that separates you and I from God as Father, and then he, he rises from the grave, conquering death itself. It's when we turn and put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus that then we're adopted into the family of God and can call God Father. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 14. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father, this term of of intimacy and closeness. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. See, this this is what it means when we're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're, we're born again. It means that that by the Spirit living in us, we are immersed into the life of Jesus so that we we come to share his position before God, which is crazy to think about, right? Because we've been adopted, because the Spirit lives in us, because of Jesus' work, when we speak to God, he listens to us as if we were Jesus. Jesus is God's son, God's child by nature, we become God's children by his grace. Jesus was born of God, we are adopted into his family. Uh, Tim Keller's got a great book on prayer as well, and in, in his book, he explains it to us this way. He says, from the moment Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God promised to make humanity his children again. God called the nation of, of Israel my firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4. He named the kings of Israel, uh, David and Solomon, to be his sons. Nevertheless, the history of Israel and the history of Israel's kings was one of failure to trust and obey God and truly be his sons. 
But at Jesus' baptism, however, God speaks from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And as theologian Graham Goldsworthy says, one can almost hear heaven sigh with relief, for here at last is a true son, one who can and will perfectly trust, obey, and please his father. So if we are united with Christ, then God always hears us. I love how he also elsewhere writes, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child. And we have that kind of access to God. So, how do we pray? Well, the most important aspect of Christian prayer isn't the direction we face, isn't the repetition of words, it isn't the physical posture we take, although those things may be important. But the most important thing is an acknowledgement of who it is that we're praying to. See, God doesn't delight in rote ritual or, or posturing, but he delights in an honesty of our hearts. He wants to hear from us. He wants to know that we love him. He, he wants to know that we want to be with him. He wants to know that we trust him or want to grow in all these things as well. He wants to know that, that we believe that he cares for us. He wants to know that, that we, we know that we can bring whatever is going on in our lives to him. And he wants to know that, that we believe he can do anything about everything. And so what we need when we pray is, is less of an awareness of ourselves, but more of an awareness of God. We don't want to approach God as, as a buddy, as a genie that we just say the right things and he has to listen. Or we don't want to approach God as a dictator or taskmaster. Instead, we come to God as a child, comforted and confident that our Father in heaven loves us and wants to hear from us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text and this teaching. Jesus, thank you that you came and taught and that when the disciples asked, how do we pray? How do we relate to God? You taught them and you taught us. Jesus, I pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to teach us this morning and into our weeks how to pray. <coughs> Give us confidence in our prayers. I, I pray uh, against the lies of the enemy that, that we may hear, that, that we're not doing it right, that we're not good enough, that uh, the distractions thrown our way, I, I pray uh, that you'd protect us from those things. And Jesus, help us to come with, with childlike hearts before our Father in heaven. Jesus, thank you that you came and lived and died for our sins so that we might be adopted sons and daughters into the family of God to have that 3 a.m. asking for a glass of water from the king kind of access. Father God, thank you that you hear our prayers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.